You are listening to the Evolution Exchange podcast, a melding pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders in Australia. I'm Shauna. I help connect tech companies with top tech talent. And today I'm your host. So welcome back to another Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, um, I'm basically joined by two incredible leaders in the tech industry in Sydney. Um, and we're going to be discussing the topic of how to maintain engineering culture when growing at scale. Um, and this kind of has a nice twist on it. Um, and we're kind of looking at the, that subtopics around pivoting from a local team to a global th- team, then more in-depth like to the very specific teams, looking at things like how to recognize what pieces of culture to keep, maybe what pieces of culture doesn't work anymore. Um, other topics like how to introduce leaders to flat structures. Um, but yeah, I'm really keen to see how this one goes. So um, the best thing to to do, I think, to get started would to do like a little intro. Um, and I think if you would like to take it away first, Steve, Stephen, apologies. <laughs> Yeah, uh, thanks for that, Shauna. So, Stephen Parker, mm-hmm. um, I'm CEO of Worldline Services Australia. Uh, Worldline's a, a very large European payments company, number one in Europe, uh, and we're bringing the technology to Australia as part of a joint venture with uh, ANZ Bank. Uh, so, my job is really just to lead the introduction of that technology and uh, how we deliver on an ongoing basis. Um, I've had uh, 30 odd years in IT leadership. Uh, I'm a self uh, taught developer, spent a lot of my career leading uh, development and application teams uh, and uh, working across. I've seen Agile arrive. I've seen uh, lots of techniques. I've been through various booms and busts. Uh, so seen a lot and uh, yeah, really enjoy uh, the leadership, the people aspect of it. Uh, I can write code, but it's probably best that I didn't. Um, I'm much better with people. Uh, so uh, really <laughs> like seeing uh, people grow, particularly in that area of leadership and, and working with other people, uh, despite what you hear about chat GPT and things like that, uh, code's always going to be written by people and understanding people, I think, is a key part of making that as effective as possible. Awesome. Thank you. Um, Daniel, tell us about yourself. Yeah, cheers, Shauna. Um, I'm Daniel Burton. So I'm an uh, engineering manager at a company called Waddle uh, from Zero. Uh, so yeah, subsidiary of Zero. We were um, we're a business lender uh, who sell our software as a service to other lenders as well. So um, kind of big on the whole dog fooding of our own product type of thing. It's worked well for us over the last few years. Um, personally, come from a background of uh, working in financial industry, uh, mainly across larger enterprises. But over time, I've noticed I've been working for smaller companies. And uh, <laughs> when I joined Waddle, it was a really small company. So um, yeah, now it's starting to get a bit bigger post-acquisition. So um, my background is in, in software, um, was kind of hands-on up until a uh, number of years ago, um, based around JVM predominantly, but like to dabble in, or used to like to dabble in the front end of things as well. Um, yeah. I guess um, currently passionate about, uh, I guess, the softer side of software delivery. So um, people has been a big part of uh my last few years at Waddle. Um, and turns out I kind of really enjoy that side of things. I never thought I would, to be honest. Um, coaching engineers nice. and mentoring them is something I really enjoy as well. And um, servant leadership is something uh, that I've been exposed to predominantly through my time at Waddle and um, really enjoy that as a, as a topic and a subject. So yeah, that's a bit about me. Nice one. Thank you very much. That's excellent. I'm really looking forward to picking about your brains around the topics of how to maintain engineering culture when growing at scale. Um, but I think one thing I think we should all maybe um, dive into is maybe tell us a little bit both of what you guys, um, what resonates with you when you think of culture? Like what does engineering culture mean to each of you? Um, Stephen, do you want to tell us what it means to you and yeah, it's the, yeah. Thanks, Sean. It was uh, something I was thinking uh, about as I was preparing for this. Uh, I guess from a simplified point of view, I guess I treat process as the what you do and culture almost the how you do it, uh, and that can take a mm-hmm. lot of forms. But the kind of example I use, uh, and I'm sure Dan uh, they do it as well. But code reviews are a key part of. Uh, um, 
engineering practice. So I don't think it's really appropriate to say, well, uh, uh, code reviews are part of our culture, but I've seen a lot of co code reviews in a lot of organizations and they can be a lot of things. Um, they can be uh, reinforcing a hierarchy. They can bring out some pretty ordinary behaviors. Uh, they can be a game that people try to play. Mm. The flip side is they can be treated as a learning opportunity, a teaching opportunity, a chance to better uh, improve your code and be get it better at what you're doing. Uh, and I think that kind of defines the culture. It's something we really look at at Worldline that, yeah, code reviews, yes, they're a necessary step in terms of um, ensuring quality code and catching mistakes. But more importantly, they're a way of reinforcing that we're always learning, that we can always learn off each other, that the most experienced person doesn't necessarily have the best solutions. And so that is one aspect of our culture uh, that just manifests ourselves in in the act of code reviews. Nice. I really like how you put that processes versus the practice. It's never actually been said like that before, but another way of looking at it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dan, tell us what 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 comes to mind <laughs> to yourself when you think of culture. I know you've worked in some incredible engineering cultures yourself, so I'd love to get yeah. your thoughts. Oh, it's a, it's actually a pretty difficult question to answer. I think, um, yeah, because I think depending on who you ask and the experiences they've had, they're gonna you're gonna get different answers from different people. For me, yeah. culture is kind of what what a team lives and breathes day to day, and what we hold each other accountable for. Um, it plays mm -hmm. a big part of that. So I think you, you touched on some interesting points there, Stephen. Um, before requests and code reviews is is one aspect of it, but um, I find it I really like the behavioral side of things. So you know, what a team expects of each other, um, setting up um, operating rhythms, things like that, all, all feed into culture. And I think, um, you know, when a culture is working well, uh, enables a team to work really autonomous, autonomously. Um, mm. And I'd love to talk about that topic in depth a bit more uh, in general, actually. But um, yeah, yeah. I, my, my view of it and how I've seen it mature over the last few years at Waddles changed uh, quite a bit. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I actually agree with you as well. Obviously, myself, um, when I am recruiting for different companies, I do really try to understand, you know, tell me about their culture. Um, and it, is, it actually does kind of become a blurred line when you look at what processes and practices they use versus what culture. Um, but a lot of it kind of comes down to a lot about the behavioral side. I find, like you said there, Stephen, is the practices and processes are slightly different. And a lot of the time, those those parts of the culture can be thought, whereas the behavioral side of things where you just dug into there, Dan, that kind of comes with just the person, the personality. And a lot of time, there are things that maybe can't really be thought um, or developed. Um, so it is, it's, it's hard to define and there are good ways of, of definitely putting it. Um, so I think before we kind of jump into the topics that you guys both brought to the table today, which are uh, pretty fantastic. You've got like three or four different sort of subtopics underneath this. Um, and like I said before, they both um, resonate in the space of, you know, kind of how a company grows at scale, but also how both your companies have kind of gone through massive transitions into different types of mergers and acquisitions. Um, therefore, you're kind of um, looking at scaling culture at a whole other aspect. You're kind of intertwining different cultures and different processes from different teams and trying to keep everyone sort of happy and the best parts of your culture alive. Um, so the first subtopic that um, Stephen, you um, brought to light was, um, which is very kind of specific to Worldline and where you're currently at at the moment. I know you've had heaps of different uh, types of engineering cultures you've gone through, but it's about how to pivot from a local team to a global team, um, keeping in mind that you know, the culture, the engineering culture that you have created. Um, so tell us a little bit about your experience of what you've um, gone through um, to yeah. achieve, achieve that recently. Yeah, and, and I guess uh, the, the another layer on that is um, I joined uh, Bambora, which is now owned by Worldline. Um, 
uh, one week before lockdown started with COVID. So pretty much my introduction <laughs> to the organization was as we massively transitioned to work from home and, and all the upheaval that went with that. So we were uh, out of the out of the blocks, basically trying to navigate this brave new world and, and holding on to the culture of the company, trying to maintain it. It was a very social, uh, very diverse company that I joined, which was fantastic. It was one of the mm-hmm. reasons I was attracted to it, uh, how could we maintain that during uh, during lockdown, during remote working, isolation, people dealing with all sorts of things that they'd never had to deal with before? Um, so I think one of the really good things of that was it put culture front and centre from from day one for me. It made it a priority that it might not have otherwise been, and I was very lucky that I had a, a really strong leadership team I was part of and a good culture that we uh, that we were building on. So uh, like most organizations, we we managed to adjust and, and came out uh, pretty well. And at that time, um, Worldline acquired our parent company. So we became part of the Worldline organization. And at the same time, they were looking to launch the joint venture in Australia. So we, very fortuitously, we were able to take a lot of the Bambora people and uh, use them as the nucleus to build the new Worldline uh, services organization in Australia uh, and part of that was the opportunity I had to step into the new role. Um, one of the key things uh, that we did was then identify uh, the opportunity to build some teams in Australia that would start working on the global platform. There were some features uh, that we were implementing to help us launch in Australia and it obviously made sense to uh, to utilize local teams uh, to do that. Uh, and in this particular instance, it's not a route that every company can take, but we actually built a new team from scratch. So we went to the market, we recruited, not because we didn't have uh, uh, good talented people in the organization, quite the opposite, uh, but we were growing and we thought it'd be good to allow some people to come in fresh, uh, to not be distracted with existing uh, responsibilities and um, be able to just focus on learning the new platform and and. Uh, integrating with the European counterparts. Uh, So um, we kind of just just got ahead of the big uh, recruitment uh, uh, strangle uh, that Kayla. So we were able to we were able to stand up a team actually in six weeks uh, and uh, got some great yeah. individuals on board. Uh, but we then found ourselves in the situation where we effectively we had two different sorts of teams working on two different sort of platforms, and there was the, I guess, the risk or the temptation to kind kind of create a two-tier organization, and we were really adamant that we didn't want to do that. So uh, we ensured that there was still a lot of uh, things that we did across the organization that we did similarly, that we came together as an engineering team, as an organization, that we shared what was happening between the two uh, the two platforms we were working on. Um, but we also acknowledged that the new team that we created were probably, yeah, they were going to struggle the most transitioning to that. So the fact that they didn't have existing sort of responsibilities for the the Bambora platform allowed them to go through that journey. Um, at the same time, we had to probably become a bit more formal in some of the processes mm-hmm. uh, because we were integrating to a larger organisation. So things like agile ceremonies, demos, things like that, where because some of our peers and and stakeholders were on the other side of globe in different time zones, we had to more formally demonstrate where things were at rather than just pulling someone over to your desk and and demonstrating them. So in some ways, adding the new team, I think sort of helped us mature our culture a bit in terms of some of our ways of working um, and allowed us to then take what we were applying to the new team and then fit it across the other team. So again, we kept that consistency of the teams. And I think when we talk about scaling teams, that's probably the key thing that you need to in some way keep everyone aware and visible and on the same page. They may not be at the same level of maturity, but you can't have two divergent approaches. I think it's really important that you you identify those common characteristics and yeah. then uh, uh, apply them. 
the beauty of the model was that once we had that team up and running and uh, standing a team up in six weeks and having them productive within three months was uh, an incredible achievement and speaks a lot to that team and the people that were in it um, and, and certainly got us a lot of uh, recognition from the European counterparts and how quickly uh, we could move. And I think that was the product of coming from a smaller company and a more agile culture that we were able to respond that way. What we were then able to do is start to then transition some of those local teams to global uh, features. And the transition just took a fraction of the time because we'd laid the groundwork. We had people that could mentor and assist and get involved. So we found that the subsequent teams that came on board were able to to transition a lot more quickly. Uh, and that meant that, yeah, the we didn't have to kind of go through the whole process again. Every time we, we transitioned a team, it happened a lot more smoothly, a lot more seamlessly. And we're now at the point where uh, effectively nearly all of the company from uh, a development perspective is, is working in a consistent way uh, uh, on consistent platforms. And the beauty of it is that... Um, there hasn't been what you would say a measurable change to the culture. We don't look back and then and say, wow, that was a totally different organization. Yeah. It's kind of the same organization, just working on different uh, different platforms, using different tools and things like that. But effectively, a lot of the stuff that was important to us about collaboration, respect, um, working uh yeah, admitting your mistakes and looking for solutions, not blame. These things really uh, were able to make that transition. Uh, and we're also fortunate that Worldline as a whole had a similar culture so that we were able to just uh, align those two, work in different ways uh, uh, because of time zones and because of kind of different backgrounds, but effectively work as a, a team that collaborated really, really well together. Amazing. I, there's some interesting points you raised there, Stephen. I, I was kind yeah. of curious. It sounds like the the approach there uh, to pivot from a local team to a global team was to build a new team. And um, I was wondering, uh, I guess initially the team that came over from Bambora that were still kind of not involved at that global work, in that global work to begin with, um, what was their initial reaction? And even like culturally, were there any differences? And what what did you take from that team in terms of uh, processes, even ceremonies, and and uh, use as a baseline for this new global team. I'm kind of keen to hear about that. Yeah, and that that's interesting. I think that's one of the areas where we probably made some good conscious decisions. Uh, one was. Uh, to identify that the long-term game was to to bring everyone on that journey uh, mm. so that we were able to message that, we were able to sit down and say, hey, here's where we're going, here's when we see other teams transitioning. Um, but we also had to, to honour that commitment. I, I, it was very important to me that I had senior engagement uh, at higher levels to say, hey, I'm going to stand up in front of the organization and promise this and I intend to follow through. Uh, so I think that put us in a good position that we could back that up. Uh, and we also shared what was happening within that new team with the other teams. So we say, hey, here's a taste of what's to come. At the same time, you have to explain the importance of the mission. The Bambora uh, platform uh, still runs, uh, still provides a vital payment services to a lot of key customers uh, and still requires um, some really creative solutions um, by top people. So we didn't want to devalue the work that, that others were doing, um, mm. but we did yes. say, look, yeah, the platform we're bringing to Australia with Worldline is the future and uh this is how we're going to transition everyone and take them on that journey. So to your point, it was a lot of communication explaining where we were at, where people fitted into it, what the future path was at. Part of that was communicating to the whole organisation. Part of it was a lot of one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations. And to me, that was also important that uh, mm -hmm. myself and other leaders in the, the technology area were consistently delivering that message and giving people the opportunity to express concerns or mm -hmm. uh, any issues they had. So I think you just can't do it as a one-off exercise. It's a mm -hmm. constant process of communication and engagement. Mm -hmm. Wow. Did you ever get like much pushback from then the other teams that may have had their own, uh, you know, ideas of like what their culture is or their processes are? Did you get much pushback? And if so, how did you overcome overcome that? I think um, 
it's interesting. Europe's obviously, and, and Europe's not a, a, a single thing. Uh, Worldline is definitely a, a diverse organisation. They've got uh, staff and and companies in uh, all over Europe. Uh, mm. So from that perspective, if you're dealing with Europe, you are dealing with uh, with France and Belgium and Netherlands and Switzerland and lot Sweden, lots of different uh, countries. So um, all had their own kind of nuances, um, but. I think it was just a case of um, kind of getting the basics uh, mm. down pat, that this is how we communicate. We've got to catch up. We're probably going to have to work a bit later in the night. We need them to start a bit earlier. We need to focus on that overlap, um, but also not be afraid to bring a bit of the the Australian uh, personality mm. style to, to the equation. I think that was uh, quite enjoyed by some of our uh, counterparts in Europe, and I think it was important for us to, to maintain that unique identity Entity, but also be mindful that there are different ways of operating and different cultures in other areas that yeah. we need to to be aware of. Uh, some some of the teams we deal with are a bit more structured. Some are, uh, for some reason, uh, Swedish and uh, Australians have a lot in common. I discovered, which I would never have guessed really? at the outset. <laughs> um, just yeah, just a very easygoing nature. So we we discovered that as part of the journey. So yeah, there was a lot to do there. I think it's a double edged sword. It's fantastic to mm-hmm. deal with. With with uh, people from um, different different countries, particularly countries that you know a bit about, but probably don't know from a day to day basis. Um, on the flip side, yeah, there are different ways of working, different understandings, and you need to become mindful of those and just slightly yes. adjust or be uh, be more sympathetic to those to to work effectively with those teams. Brilliant. Cool. Dan, were you going to ask a question there? Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just, um, yeah, pretty uh, thought-provoking uh, stuff there. I, it is. I, I think um, uh, the experience Waddles had has been quite different to that. I don't know. Um, yeah, I could probably go into that a little bit if you're keen to hear about yeah, it. Um, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, actually, um, one of the main reasons I joined Waddle at the time was uh, to get exposed to working, I guess, internationally. Um, and it was just when... Waddle had landed our first partnership with um, a larger enterprise and it was over in the UK. And um, so we spoke about culture really briefly earlier and a big part of the Waddle culture initially was all based around being in the same room together. Um, When I had joined, it was with a a bunch of uh, ex-colleagues of mine from Tyro predominantly. Um, So I kind of knew what I was How big was the team? Um, So there were five engineers one of them was the founder at the time as well so um relatively small but i had yeah. worked directly with all of them previously too so it was a really safe bet for me and it was kind of a nice opportunity to get in and um i was uh, prior to that working in a larger enterprise and was had worked on a project for a year that hadn't ever seen the light of day so i was looking to get uh <laughs> a, a job where i had a bit more of an impact uh on on the the users so yeah anyway the opportunity to work with people that i respected and admired was uh, a no-brainer for me and then like i said um the opportunity on top of that to go and work overseas and help build uh what is a local team into a global one was uh Mm -hmm. an opportunity i didn't want to pass up so um yeah like i said culturally we we were all really um built around being in a room together focused on really specific uh business and product problems and solving them with kind of um, this flat hierarchy, which is probably um, just a trendy thing to say now. But um, yeah, at the time, I didn't know any better and I was all about it. And um, yeah, we um, started to try to solve that problem of how do we work with a team that's based in probably one of the worst time zones to collaborate with synchronously. Um, and we did that by simply flying over there and spending time with the team embedded. And um, you know that allowed us to kind of expose them to the culture and uh, which we were all kind of proud of at the time. We, we loved working uh, within the team and uh, we wanted others to kind of get exposed to that uh, and, and and be part of that journey. So um, this is prior to, you know, um, COVID as well. So we ended up doing that for a, a number of years until we couldn't anymore. And um, we had to all pivot to working from home, which none of us had really done. Again, we, yeah. like I said, it valued being in a room together for that constant feedback um, that you get. And yep. yeah, huge shift for us um, with COVID and having to work remotely. And benefit of that is it, it kind of forced us to improve uh, the way we were working with our, our smaller team over in the UK because we were still relying on that on that um, crutch of being there in person. And um, 
never really tried to solve it uh, any other way. And then all of a sudden we're forced to do that. So we, I would say we, we did pretty poorly at first, to be honest. Um, we noticed huge gaps right. in communication, um, sharing of strategy and vision was lacking because um, that was all just happening dynamically uh, in a room up until that point. And um, we yeah. had to really yeah. pivot and none of us really had a clue on how to do that well. So um, yeah, <laughs> it was uh, a bit of a challenge and uh, something that's been quite fundamental to Waddle uh, and the engineering side of things anyway is uh, culture of continuous improvement. Um, and we've kind of baked that into uh, our engineering processes. We, we did that to begin with because yeah. that's what yeah. we knew. Um, and we've had to expand that to our delivery processes over time as well. So um, that meant that we were quite quickly getting feedback from our team in the UK that they felt disengaged and like they weren't part of the broader team. And, um, you know, I think for years we were still trying to fight that. And um, we, we kind of, to this day, still have issues uh, with communication, if I'm being honest. It's, it's a real tough yeah. problem to solve. Um, but I guess the move to predominantly asynchronous working and remote working has helped us kind of force us to be better there. But that's quite a different journey to what it sounds like you've been yeah. there, Stephen. And um, we, we've we had a whole uh, bunch of delivery challenges as well. So um, we didn't spin up a new team to work on this uh, project. We kind of shifted our entire team in Australia to work on this project. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a large change. And um, like I said, relying on the culture of continuous improvement and feedback, we um, took, took a lot of iterations for us to get remotely close to being comfortable with the, with the method of operating. And um, yeah, so a lot of lessons were learned there. Pretty good insights, and, actually. I just picked up on, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> and I keep going, I'll jump in. <laughs> um, it was just, I just noticed like, um, Stephen, you mentioned a couple of keywords there and um, so did yourself, Daniel. It was like you're you're talking about continuous improvement and feedback as mm. like key components of your culture. Um, and then as well, Stephen, you were talking about collaboration, respect and kind of that ownership of, of what you're doing. And, you know, if you're going to say you're going to do it, let's do it across the board. Mm. But mm. I feel like they, they sound like very similar, um, you know, ideas across the board there that sound like are really important when you are going to create a culture that is global is that like continuous improvement feedback collaboration and communication um they sound like key key important pieces of a of a good culture for that environment would that be right mm, yeah definitely yeah. um mm. maybe yeah really quickly you can expand on that i think um yeah. Uh, there was a, like, I guess Waddle was founded from a, an engineering culture of being quite big on testing. And um, you know, anyone that's familiar with Tyro Payments, for instance, they were practiced an extreme programming approach and test-driven development was quite big there as well. So, that's right. Um, the foundation And actually paired programming, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. The paired programming. So that's like yeah. literally sitting in a room coding yeah. together. So, yeah. wow. And, uh, the big part about that is like uh, you get constant feedback from another person sitting next to you, right? And um, through the going through the motions of testing the the code you're writing, you're constantly getting feedback as to whether you're headed down the right path or not as well. And um, what we found is that that type of I guess approach works more broadly than just with software as well. It's like from a delivery and team building perspective, um, having the ability to test the changes that you're making is a really really crucial part of um, being able to determine whether you're again, headed in the right direction or not with the changes you're making. Because if, if you're not measuring a change and, uh, you know, the consequences of a change, how do you know that it was a, a good change, you know? Um, so uh, we've been quite big on that um, over the last few years at Waddle. And, you know, we use all the typical uh, kind of tools for that. So retros and um, structured feedback sessions are uh, a big part of it. Um, funnily enough, uh, post the acquisition by Zero, we've been able to leverage a lot of their resources and um, learning tools that they provide because they're a much larger organization than, than Waddle is, uh, yeah. which has been quite helpful for us because we, we, we did notice it was hard to spend time intentionally getting better than when you are a small team. Uh, it takes time mm -hmm. away from you know, delivery of products, which is always really kind of key when you, when you are a small, a small team. But um, yeah, uh, that being able to um, test frequently and often in kind of all the changes you're making uh, in, in a delivery team, I think is, is really critical part of um, growing and scaling it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think um, you talk about flat structures, but I think there's also uh, 
something we've tried to do is really just the team accountability to to build your teams and then say you guys work out the best way of delivering xyz so the example i quite often use is that i'm of the view that the uh, the product owner and the tester should get together before a requirement goes anywhere near a developer to say hey what's it trying to do and how can we test uh if it's doing it just as dan said then rather than the mm. historical way is the requirement goes to the coder and then the tester gets uh kind of comes in at the tail end of the process i think uh you can do that from a structural way or you can empower the team to say look here's what we're expecting you guys work out the best way of uh, structuring and working together uh and i think also Certainly for me, I see a move towards more of a generalism. I think that there are various points in the software cycle where mm -hmm. people can wear different hats. Uh, and I think that works really well. It helps you kind of manage load and things like that. But again, it requires some of those traits that we talked about, w willingness to grow, to learn, to be flexible. Mm -hmm. Because if you've yeah. got a developer that thinks testing is a, a menial job and beneath me, um, a, I wouldn't want to sit and pair program with that person for a day, but um, yeah. more to the point, yeah, you you just build a, a brittle structure that's not going to be effective, whereas everyone says, hey, I've got capacity or we need to get through some testing or I'm going to sit down with the tester and help them with some of their scripting and coding skills so they can do automation. That's the sort of thing. You want to hire people that are going to to work in that way, but you also need to build a structure that encourages rewards and gives people mm. the time and and space to do that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, it's something I kind of spend a bit of time thinking about is um, the behaviors that uh, I guess a company values um, mm. really shapes how a team behaves, and um, you know you can shout from the top of the hills that, you know, quality is important and we've got to have X amount of test coverage. But uh, at the end of the day, if, they, if your team doesn't truly believe that that's uh, important to the business through their other actions and behaviors, then it's simply not going to happen. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I think the other thing is, is the empowerment so that people... A, feel they can speak up, but B, know that it has to be done in a respectful way that focuses on the issue, not the person. Again, a, a, another one of my, my favorite quotes that testers aren't doing their job until developers change their habits, that there's no point having testers sitting up there, uh, sitting there catching the same mistakes over and over. They need to be giving <laughs> the tough love back to the developers so that they're coding more defensively or whatever the case may be, so that the quality of the devs code improves and therefore testers have achieved their aim of lifting quality, uh, mm. not by just con uh, constantly finding bugs and getting them fixed. Mm. Right. I love that little insight with the whole um, putting the product owner and the tester at the start of the process. Um, I've never, I've never heard, heard of that before. Um, and then another thing, I've, yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of as well is picking out behaviors in software developers as opposed to what, what programming language are they using. Yeah. It's such like a common theme now. Like you, it, I almost, in my head, I, I, I sort of do this thing where I'm like, right, there's a developer and then, then there's an engineer. Um, and I think the behaviors of an engineer are very different to that of a, a developer. I think in my head, a developer is <laughs> someone that takes the ticket, writes the code and pass over like the whole kind of waterfall approach. Where now, you know, like true tech companies and companies that are creating these global um, teams and global reach in terms of product and users are looking for software engineers that will, yeah, use different hats, like get into DevOps, like how far will they go to DevOps? So, you know, um, developers that are writing tests, um, you've got like uh, software engineers in tests now. And, you know, it's just like yeah. even, you know, the, the senior software engineers sitting with the product owners and the tech lead and the UX person to come up with, you know, what what a, what the next sort of project feature is so common. But um, yeah. And, yeah, uh, and I'll go out on a limb and say we invent <laughs> a lot of those titles just to try and capture flexibility, that people are doing multiple things with multiple skills, but we're not comfortable calling them generalists. So we come up with <laughs> DevOps in testing and things like yeah. that. So, uh, <laughs> but I think, yeah, they're all just variations on the same thing, theme of allowing people to grow their skills as much as possible and taking every opportunity to use those if they add value. Mm. Brilliant. Another yeah. thing I think I've heard time and time again is how to make sure that, you know, you're kind of giving people freedom and the empowerment 
to do what they're doing. But then you, you hit something really important there, Stephen, was to have the respect and understand that it's looking at the problem as opposed to the person. Because um, a lot of companies have seen, you know, that kind of want to shift into this, you know, past sort of the... Um, you know, some of that empowerment onto the software engineers. But when it goes wrong, there's a kind of like a finger pointed at the person because, yeah. you know, then you're kind of undoing that um, yeah. hard work to give the empowerment. I think that's something that's important. But it is, it, that all comes down to then, isn't it? The behaviours um, yeah. in the engineering culture. Yeah, um, it's one thing to say, you know, we, we have a culture of safety and empowerment and, and this and then, you know, as soon as there's an issue and someone's running around trying to point the finger at an engineer or a tester <laughs> that didn't do their job properly, well, then, yeah. you know, your actions don't reflect what you're actually trying to preach. So um, real quickly, you can lose the trust of your team. Um, so I think kind of standing by what your values are and actually living them is super important, especially as you grow the team, because, you know, people aren't aren't silly. They're going to see through the, that type of shenanigans real quick. And, um, you know, the market... Uh, been quite hot over the last few years and uh people will kind of move on if you you've promised them one thing in terms of a, a working environment and then you're delivering another it's it's quite easy to see through that i think yeah. brilliant yeah um yeah, no, and it's again uh i, I explained it's, it's what i wouldn't call it an unfairness but as a leader you can do the right thing 99 times and you do the wrong <laughs> thing once and you get hammered for it it's not fair but it's the reality of leadership so consistency is absolutely essential to building a culture. If you flip flop, if you let things through, as you said, Dan, people are going to pick that up. They're going to see it, and yeah. you're, you're kind of uh, just really shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. You know, this actually brings us really nicely onto um, Dan your topics that you brought, um, and that is creating like a culture um, and maintaining a culture um, of you know, how to kind of create a culture that gives and allows for feedback, but also mm -hmm. how to measure performance properly as well. But as you grow and scale and intertwine with these <laughs> global teams and other teams, like how, like, how does that work? Tell me yeah. about your experience yeah. there. Yeah, well, I can give a bit of a story, I guess, here from Waddle's perspective. Yeah. So um, we still don't really measure performance directly in a, like a traditional sense in terms of like KPIs and things like that. Um, so uh, we... Are constantly looking uh, for measuring performance through feedback, and that's through uh, feedback from our product team, um, our business stakeholders, and also the other mm -hmm. engineers that our uh, team are working with day in day out. So, what we found was uh, at a particular point in time. So, uh, we were historically um, kind of obsessed, almost to a fault, with the idea of um, teal organizations. So, there's like there's a, a book called Reinventing Organizations um, that we had kind of passed around internally and. Um, we were all kind of sold on this idea of a teal org, which is just kind of teams that uh, manage themselves. You know, there's not a um, dedicated team lead or anything like that. And um, I think it, it takes a really specific type of person and engineer to be able to mm. uh, work really well in, in that type of environment. And we were, we had a phase where we did have a team that was structured with people that did work quite well there. And uh, what we found, we were talking earlier about hiring uh, a kind of indirectly and terms of behaviors and looking for behaviors in candidates as opposed to um, skill sets. Um, and yeah. we found quite quickly as we tried to grow that uh, that was <laughs> a difficult thing to do. Um, so we, we did change our approach um, a little over time there. But yeah, measuring performance, coming back to that, um, we hit a point where while we were operating under that model, we effectively had a, a single lead uh, in the traditional sense for a team of about 20 engineers. And um, that meant you know, how often can you have a one-on-one -on -one with a lead when they've got 20 other reports and they're a founder and they've got a hundred other responsibilities day to day. And what we found was there wasn't proper avenues for engineers to get feedback uh, from a lead and uh, someone that can deliver them feedback in a way that is going to be, you know, received well by that other, by that person. So um, yeah. we actually ended up losing a, a couple of people as a result of that, uh, neglecting that area um, of our team. So, uh, we we made a move to um, well, first of all, we just consulted the team and said like, what are we missing here? We we, we had our ideas, but we thought let's let's uh, try to collaborate, get some feedback from the wider team, and it was just 
uh, more direction and uh, opportunities to receive direct feedback one-on-one is what a lot of people were screaming out for. Um, and to me, that is um, them looking for inputs on their performance, right? And um, yeah, I've mentioned a few times, this, originally, we, we just kind of hired within our own network, which is something we, we probably should have stopped a bit earlier. <laughs> we can talk about that a bit later yeah. if we have time as well. But um, <laughs> like, yeah, to, to kind of start to count that, we realized... Uh, that we did need to make a change to the way we were structuring our teams and the way we were bringing work into the teams as well. So um, we introduced uh, your typical kind of team lead and uh, it was a more broad uh, kind of delivery slash tech lead um, that was responsible for all things uh, management within that team and was also responsible for ensuring that um, each engineer within their team was given appropriate feedback and um, guidance as to their performance. So we had a lot of avenues for feedback there at the time. It was coming from product. You know, we'd hear whispers about maybe a particular feature being delivered a little bit more slowly than mm-hmm. they'd expect or from another engineer saying, oh, I've noticed this other engineer's code's a bit sloppy. And um, we were also at the time still uh, practicing uh, kind of trunk-based development, uh, like at its most basic level where each of our engineers could commit code straight to um, Outmaster and it'd be in prod within an hour. And um, that was... A great thing at first, but as you expand the team and you get people in with different skill sets, um, you know, different experiences. And yeah, again, another point where it doesn't really scale too well. But uh, so we were seeing uh, avenues of feedback coming in, but no one was really empowered to do anything with that until uh, we brought in a lighter form of uh, leadership within the team. So that that started to work um, quite well for us. And we've kind of mm-hmm. continued to follow that approach. We're not much larger now. And I think uh, compared to the team uh, you're with, Stephen, we're still relatively small. Um, but yeah, with, I was keen to get uh, some of your views on, I guess, measuring performance and feedback uh, while you're trying to scale. Like how, how have you managed that? It was interesting because we did the identical thing with tech leads. Um, we just needed mm-hmm. to give that more uh, direct and, and timely discussions and things like that. So we created right. uh, tech leads, as you described. Again, um, a very light touch people management role, not people that sit and sort of uh, spend 90% of their time doing people admin, but hands-on developers that also, or uh, testers or product owners or whatever the background might be, um, that could just, um, yeah, give give that proximity to the people in their team and, and coordinate from there. And that was really effective for a number of reasons. It freed up our head of technology to, to uh, work more strategically, uh, it was a sort of growth and expansion opportunity for the people selected. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely agree. Uh, whilst there's a, a virtue to flatness, it only works so well. And as you said, people do genuinely crave, if if they've got a good self-awareness, getting that feedback uh, to know how they're performing. In terms of uh, sort of metrics and measurement, again, to me, uh, it goes back to the, the, the whole Agile manifesto, which is deliver working software. And really, it's just a case of is the team progressing the feature or whatever it is they're focused on towards where it needs to be? And are they doing that in a way where they can hand on heart, say, yeah, we're we're operating effectively? Uh, To me, I'd rather the group uh, come together and and reflect and do a retrospective than implement some JIRA add-on that's going to tell me (laughs) that they did a 36.4 this month and a 32.8 last month. They're, They're useless numbers. They're going to be gamed. Um, they don't achieve any motivational factor whatsoever. So to mm. me, it'd be rather hire people that are self-accountable and give them the opportunity to be self-accountable and be honest in their reflection of how they're performing and uh, where they can improve. And also the avenue, what do they want from their leaders? What do they want from me? to help them on that journey to improvement. It's one thing to kind of crack the whip and say, you need to get better. It's enough to say, Mm. what do you need from us to become better? Because if you solve it for one team, chances are you'll solve it for the organization. And I guess the, the shift in role that I've gone through in the last couple of years, it's the same stuff just at a broader scale. Uh, and a lot of what we do uh, with development delivery teams applies equally to to our application management teams, our shared services teams, our operations teams. It's not uh, the, there's a lot of common value there. And again, it, it's something that you want to use as broadly as you can. Mm-hmm. And again, it also creates that consistency across the teams. 
more connectedness, but also if two different teams are working in similar ways, you get that ideas from different perspectives. And I think that allows us to improve in ways that mightn't have been possible if we just took a development or a delivery focus to it. Yeah. Brilliant. With your tech leads, then, this is something I was just thinking about. So you, I, I love that kind of approach where you got like your tech lead who is still hands-on, kind of have the rapport and that ability to kind of be with the team along the journey. But who did they kind of reflect their work on or in your team, you know, who did they look to to kind of go, right, what, how am I measuring my performance? And, mm-hmm. you know, what, what does a tech lead kind of look towards or who should, what what would be a good structure for tech lead to report into or not even I mean, from, from my perspective uh, uh, and it's a bit flippant but each other they need to come together mm-hmm. as a group of peers and uh, potentially people in similar but not necessarily the same role. So our tech leads catch up with some of our um, product owners, our uh, mm-hmm. testing lead. So we've got this little cohort that come together on a regular basis. They work with our CTO to, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, just reflect and bounce off each other and things like that. So whilst there is that sort of hierarchical feedback model, I think sort of a, a group feedback model is far more effective and is going to give uh, a lot more variety of perspective, which I think is important that uh, all managers have their own views and biases. And if that's the only voice you're hearing giving you feedback on your performance, then it's probably not going to be as effective. Nice. It probably yeah. kind of brings in that whole kind of dynamic as well, where you're kind of getting a tech lead to understand a little bit more about what a product owner does and, <laughs> and likewise, the product owner understand what, what the tech lead does as well. So, um, mm. yeah, that's interesting. A, Definitely. It, with Model at the moment, we've got a, a bit of a different approach there. Um, so our tech leads, we just call them lead engineers at the moment. We struggle for names in general, like uh, <laughs> still trying to uh, break off the, I'm not going to call them shackles, but the, the cobwebs of the uh, the flat org structure that we had previously, um, that yeah. all of our current um, lead engineers have come from like a product engineering background where um, they do have a bit mm. of, uh, I guess, empathy for product as a concern. And um, to your question uh, as well, Shauna, about uh, where they yeah. look to for feedback, I guess um, part of that's kind of my role at the moment at Waddle, but we actually rely heavily upon the teams that they engage with for feedback as to how they're performing and how they can be better. And um, our, our, each of our um, tech leads uh, actually operates quite differently. We have a, an agreed kind of core set of values that we want uh, each of our leads to embody within the teams that they're in. But uh, past yeah. that point, if they see like specific concerns that they think they can help the team with, then they've, they've got the freedom uh, to do that as well. And again, we look at feedback from their team to look at ways in which they can improve their performance or adjust it accordingly. And that's been working relatively well for us up until now. We'll see how it goes over time. Again, constantly uh, evaluating all of the ways uh, of working that we we currently use. But um, yeah, we've we've kind of flipped it on its head there. We so I, we've mentioned the phrase servant leadership a couple of times now. We were uh, we've been quite big on that um, at Waddle. Um, we kind of most of the leadership positions are put in place there to serve the needs of the engineers uh, around them so that they can uh, you know provide the most value to the business essentially, uh, which is kind of what we're all here to do. If we yeah, break it down. Yeah, uh, that's great insights. Uh, it's a really nice way of actually doing it as well. And obviously when you're hiring that person, they definitely need to be people that are open to feedback and being humble, um, you know, mm. having people maybe reporting into them to, like, to be able to give them feedback. That's a whole other way of looking at it. Um, really, really great. Mm. Um, you know what? This is There's another thing that you mentioned as well, Daniel, and this probably takes us on to that, is obviously you, we've got all these like, you know, kind of like words that really kind of make a culture stand on its on its own mm. two feet. Um, one thing you brought up, which I thought was brilliant, is kind of we're always looking at how to kind of protect our culture as you scale. Yeah. Um, you know, and these are things that work, um, and this is what we want to keep. But like, how often is it that you kind of look at okay, what what parts of the culture don't work anymore, <laughs> and then how do you kind of like shed that kind of off? You know, is there is that another whole piece of just saying you know recognition and. I'm on t- I mean, taking ownership and uh, yeah. How, how have you guys ever approached that? <laughs> um, it's just constant, isn't it? I think uh, we've gone through waves of it over the last few years. I think um, 
the acquisition was probably the biggest change for us. Um, but mm. we, you know, we've talked a bit about it now um, uh, in terms of uh, moving from a relatively flat uh, structure to now introducing some leadership, which we kind of, again, <laughs> we just flip it around and say, well, leaders are actually underneath our engineers there to serve them. But we, yeah, uh, I think uh, knowing what to protect uh, is a real good question there because there are parts of the culture, which we, again, we've talked about um, already where they work at a certain size and with a certain uh, team composition, but as you grow and change and the needs of your team and the business change, things that work really mm. well for you all of a sudden just kind of not feasible to continue doing. Um, there's, uh, I guess the, the rhythm for doing that, we, again, just use typical uh, processes for that. We have uh, health checks that we run within our teams uh, quarterly. Uh, which kind of nice. just give you traffic light signals of what the team's uh, happy about, what they're sad about. Um, thanks to uh, Zero as well, we use um, tools such as Office Vibe to actually poke our engineers uh, quite frequently. It's usually more than once a week to just get feedback on really specific topics. But we've nice. also, with the change of introducing the leadership, what we wanted to really prioritize was um, spending a lot of time with our engineers, uh, making sure their needs are met, right? And what that looks like is just catching up with them often, talking about the problems they're facing, the challenges they're facing. And that's how we're kind of measuring uh, how our culture is evolving as we make changes over time. But yeah. what we've been really cognizant of and, and trying to avoid is not making any big bang changes to the team. So we've had a, a bit of pressure over the years to introduce some uh, bigger changes uh, in shorter timeframes. So for instance, we've just uh, completed uh, so 27,001 certification, which I don't know, it probably doesn't mean much to a lot of people, but um, essentially we need just, that. Just been through the audit. <laughs> oh, excellent. Okay, so you've, <laughs> you've got the same scars that we do. So we that was a real challenge for us, right? We we had this, um, I, I touched on earlier, like this um, culture of uh, trunk-based development, constantly push uh, code, you know, test all the time with our local lending service here in Australia, um, dog food that. And when you're looking at, getting certified, uh, you, a lot of that stuff comes into the spotlight and you think, well, uh, can we still do this now and still serve our enterprise customers? So we've had to get really creative, but um, there were times there where the easy option would have been to just enforce, you know, pull requests, here we go, guys, we're turning this on, you can't push the changes straight to a production environment anymore. And um, we actually worked quite closely with the teams to try to come up with ways to solve the lower level problems as they came up while we were working towards that certification. Um, so bringing the team in uh, to our decisions is solving a few um, problems for us. The, the one that I'm kind of most interested in though is um, buy-in uh, and getting alignment from your team about the problem you're solving. Because I've been yeah. parts of other organizations where they bring in a large sweeping change from left field and it impacts developer <laughs> experience quite heavily, which then flows on to uh, a team's ability to be able to deliver for the business in general, right? So um, yeah. we've been really conscious of protecting that um, over the last few years. So we, we try to inc uh, inc introduce these changes, um, such as pull requests, really slowly with a lot of consideration and feedback from the team, which is kind of painful. It takes a lot of time and you have some really tough conversations. But in the end, I think you end up in a better place. And as long as you've got advocates in in your company that uh, want to protect the good parts of the culture and recognize the yeah, parts that yeah. kind of need to change then um, you know there is hope I think as you grow to protect yeah. some yeah. of that core culture that is what keeps a lot of uh, people you know happy in a in a job yeah absolutely brilliant well anything you'd like to add to that Stephen uh, I guess um one one reflection I'll probably make over the last three years uh, or so is uh, I've seen a shift for more teams having more of an inward focus to an outward focus. And I think that's probably uh, what was a, a strong cultural trait and delivered benefits, but also delivered downsides. I think as you mature as an organization or as a culture, you can encourage people to be less protective of their own team and rather mm. empathize and and look to collaborate with uh people that you sort of sit on opposite sides of a problem to yeah. um yeah. for me that was probably something that that held held us back and i think we've we've moved ahead a lot from that uh uh, from those days where we're able to just say, okay, we've got this problem. Let's get the relevant people together. Let's all 
forget about our individual stakes mm. in this, but what's the best outcome for the team? Uh, understand trade-offs uh, as long as people are thinking that way. And a lot of it comes down to a theme that I think has been bubbling under the surface, which is ego. <laughs> that ego is is not a particularly helpful emotion and therefore you need to be able to, A, attract people that, that sort of aren't driven by it, but B, just, yeah, let people know that, standing up and saying, I don't know the answer or I made a mistake and that comes yeah. from the top. Uh, yeah, if you've got a culture where putting your hand up and say, well, I really screwed up then and here's what we're going to do about it, it becomes a lot easier for people to be able to, yeah, uh, stop worrying about protecting their patch and look at the bigger picture. Brilliant. It's actually something the work that we like constantly look at at evolution because we're like a global company as well. Like we've got offices in Singapore. Mm. Um, the US now, UK, all across Europe. Um, and it is, it's something that we're always looking at is like as a whole, like how do we, you know, collaborate and how do we get the culture and everyone kind of um, on board with it. And it does, I can see how, how yeah, you have to have your ad, your advocates, like people that like, do believe in it. And it's like, just try it, fr- trust the process, promise you it works, but you do need to have those advocates. But then it's also great as well. Like um, our director is really good at looking at things going like, why did we, do that why do we do that and like do we still need to do that like is it still relevant and it is it's like it, it the world and technology is just forever evolving um and the same like when we are recruiting for different companies um you know different types of approaches that we have to shift w- with those with those times as well um but yeah i definitely think ego is, is a big part of it it's like looking at what one office or one team in an office does like it, it, it just it impacts you know the whole company globally as well and it is about trying to like I suppose recognize the core pieces that we can introduce that works for everyone across the board um, and take that ego out of it um, and again it comes back to behaviors doesn't it you're trying to like trying to test like when you're interviewing people you're like okay is there an ego here and like where does it sit because you can kind of ego is just pure noise and then you have the confidence and the confidence kind of like it's quiet and it's like it's open it can you know kind of have ownership but also empty and kind of you know empowerment around other people and stuff like that as well but it does it, it all kind of transpires back to that behavioral shift definitely um and, and the people involved in that um for sure um yeah, i remember this is really um, really good insights I was just going to say, um, uh, continuing my corny anecdotes, but uh, when I was at MasterCard, <laughs> um, the, the the president uh, of uh, technology there, he used to talk about that if you put all the drummers together and all the guitarists together and all that, you just get noise. But if you have all the yeah. different instruments playing together, um, you get uh, you get what you're aiming for. So we've kind of a couple of things we've got. Uh, yeah, we're we're creating rock bands, not rock stars. And to that end, um, we kind of name all of our scrum teams after bands. So just to reinforce that notion. <laughs> so we've got nice. ACDC and Metallica and Deep purple because we're going through a heavy metal phase and then we've got Roxette (laughs) as a shout out to our Swedish friends so um yeah just just it's a simple thing but it just sends that message that yeah hey we're we're bringing all the different uh sort of complementary pieces together to try and do something good it's not about one person up the front it's really about everyone working together I love that that's brilliant. I'm going to keep that one now. I'm going to use that during the week. <laughs> yeah, rock um, bands, not rock stars. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't heard that before. <laughs> it's really, really good. It's, it's funny because he does, like, even when I'm speaking to some engineers and they say they've interviewed somewhere and they're, you know, they're like, oh, that, that person was just, you know, quite ego. And they're like, and they, some people do actually describe some of these engineers as, you know, they think they're a rock star. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Like, it's... Um, it's in every company as well, but and you do need sometimes you need a rock star, don't you, <laughs> to to shake things up from time to time as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, there's kind of you you guys have pretty much covered almost everything. I have to say, um, I think the other thing that we did already touch upon was introducing leaders to a flat structure um, and how to do that. But I think we did cover that in in how you've done it there, Daniel at um, at Waddle um, and Stephen as well. Um, you kind of, Dan, you've kind of gone gone in with the approach that the the tech leads kind of, you know, are under the the team that that yeah, they're leading, yeah. as opposed to just <laughs> them kind of being the, which is nice little way to look at it as well. Yeah, I have to yeah. say. And I think um, 
there's almost a, a subtle difference between hierarchy and structure that you can have those various layers, but they shouldn't be sort of uh, thick walls between them. People should be able to jump between different layers. If someone's got an idea, they should be able to come and see me. I'm always looking for feedback. So it's when you can only talk to a certain person because that's what the org chart says that I think it comes unstuck. Whereas I think beyond a certain level, if you don't have that that hierarchy so that you can divide some of the important people work up into manageable chunks, you're going to come unstuck. And it, it, it's a subtle difference, but I think it's a really important one to acknowledge and, and try and work with. Yeah, structure is a nice way of, of putting it because for me, visually, it just represents what it's giving your team, uh, like the foundations for them to be able to um, do whatever they need to, right? Like there's, we touched on that again earlier, like you said, Shauna, um, in terms of some of the problems we had earlier on at Waddle and then introducing mm -hmm. a light structure uh, helps to, it took us a long way and kind of is still taking us a long way now, whereas if we didn't have that, we would have been struggling uh, with a whole bunch of different problems at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good that you, you guys, you seem to recognize uh, where you struggle pretty quickly and you act on it, um, which is a great sign, I have to say, for a small team, um, you know, to to kind of scale and to shift with what you need. Um, but then I kind of also like how you both have kind of got, gone back to the teams and got their input uh, before making a drastic change um, and then delivering it across a, a broader business and a broader team with then keeping in mind you know, other people's opinions and ideas and stuff as well. And just, just you know, having an advocate and saying, give it a go, as opposed to going, this is what we're doing. Don't ask me why. <laughs> um, amazing. Anything else that um, either you would like to add? I'm just conscious of of, of the time. I'm sure you guys might have um, other meetings. I know we, we're hoping to only go till three, but I'm happy to keep going. <laughs> I'm pretty good. I don't know, Stephen, how are you feeling? I, I, I'm just kind of labor the point i've just got to jump off now because we've got a farewell yeah. and it's very important to me to uh, to make sure i'm at oh. those um so um but no it's been a fantastic chat i've really appreciated hearing from dan and having a chance just to talk through some of this stuff you sort of quite often don't get the time to really sort of uh unpack on on this subject despite how important it is so i really appreciate mm -hmm. the opportunity to to do that yeah, likewise. Thanks, Stephen. And thanks, Shauna, for the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. I really appreciate it, guys. And I think it's a great opportunity for you, for you both to reflect on your achievements um, and what, you know, the challenges that you have overcome and what you're still going through. It's, it's really, really great to see that. Um, so thank you so much for your time. 